let's just stay in that kind of mellow mood for a moment or two. Maybe just close your eyes for a second. And I just want to ask you a question that I don't know if you've ever been asked this before, but I want you to just sit for a moment in some quiet. And I want you to answer the question of where is God right now? Not in the abstract, but as you think about that question, where is he? Just sit with that thought for a moment or two. How would you explain it to someone who said to you, where is your God right now? Just sit with that for a moment. So let me uh, add my welcome to Franz, or Beckett, as I like to call her. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, sorry if you came in late, you don't understand that. But, um, but uh, my name's Dave, and I'm the minister here. And um, I, I, I feel quite excited about what I'm going to talk to you about today. That's sort of a slightly weird thing to say, isn't it? Um, not in a kind of big-headed, this is going to be amazing. But I, I found it really helpful in my own preparation. And it kind of solidified some thoughts that have been floating around. It's one of the joys of being a preacher, um, which you probably don't appreciate, is that you, know, you sort of see a kind of end product, although it never feels like that with me. But it, it is sort of an end product. But it is a chain of thought that I have to put pulled together and in doing so sometimes I convince myself of something that I just had a sort of intuition about and this is definitely one of those uh, thoughts this morning because we're going to think about the trinity and I wonder how often you think about the trinity in in the Anglican world I don't know if it's the same in the Catholic world but today is trinity Sunday I don't know why I think it's quite interesting that the trinity Sunday comes the week after Pentecost so around the world Literally millions of people today will be in churches thinking about the Trinity. And in us as a non-conformist, cooler church, <laughs> we, we, can, we go with whatever groove we want. But occasionally, it's good to go, what are other people thinking about? And so lots of people are thinking about the Trinity. So I thought, let's us think about the Trinity. But equally, we're in this quite, I think, interesting, it's <laughs> a terrible word to use, isn't it? Interesting uh, thing within the life of the church that I'm going to be talking about more over the coming weeks. And if you're coming to the weekend away, we're only going to have sort of one kind of churchy gathered time, and that's on the Sunday morning. And if you're sitting here today thinking, oh, maybe I could come over, come over and join us at half past ten on next Sunday. We kept it at half past ten because so as not to confuse God <laughs> about when, <laughs> when, when we're gathering. Um, so we'll be meeting at half ten, and we'll have a bit of a churchy thing. Um, but within that time, I want to talk about something that we are going to look at as a church for quite a long time, I think, which is this concept of the wheel of the year. Ooh, mystery, dodgy, weird, typical one church. Um, so I'm going to talk about that. So I'm just going to pin that there for you to think about. But really, the, the thought is that the world travels, the earth travels around the sun once every year. And in doing so, in the Northern Hemisphere, we have these four very distinct seasons. They impact us. They have an effect on our lives and what we can do, on what's growing and what we can eat uh, naturally at the time. And so why don't we follow that rhythm more? 
Why aren't we made more aware of that? What would it look like for one church to travel around the seasons as opposed to go from one Sunday morning subject to the next? And if anything that the life has taught us in the last few years is that life is incredibly difficult to plan for. To make plans is very difficult. However, we will travel around the sun once more this next year. Unless Boris messes that up. But no, sorry, <laughs> that was a cruel thing. But, but that's the plan anyway. You know, that is very, very likely to happen. So why not join in with something we know is going to happen rather than make plans that we don't know isn't going to happen? Does that sort of make sense? A little intriguing thing that I'm going to talk about. So I wanted to talk about, keep thinking about creation and nature, but it is Trinity Sunday. Now, if I can get through this, we will make it to the bit about Trinity and creation. But I realized in my preparation that we need to talk a bit about the Trinity first. Because I wonder how many of you could espouse, speak out, a theology of the Trinity. I wonder, I wonder if you were asked to explain what the Trinity is. I wonder how difficult that is. That's not me patronizing you because I'm not sure what the Trinity is. I know what it is sort of theoretically, but actually it's only ever a metaphor. And people try and give pictures, don't they? These terrible pictures of the shamrock. Or when I was at school, I've got this vivid memory of a, a, ch- a church vicar coming in to do an assembly on the Trinity. And he, I remember him telling us it was like WD-40, but I can't remember why. <laughs> so I always struggle with it. Every time I use WD-40, I think of Holy Spirit. Um, I, don't know, I don't know what I'm thinking of. But, um, but that was definitely one of the things. And other, other sort of abstract things, metaphors that fall short. But I want us to think about the Trinity. I want you to think about it because as a doctrine, it is a central doctrine to Christianity. Again, I'm not going to ask you to show of hands or anything, but do do you think of yourself as a Trinitarian Christian? It's quite a provocative thing in the life of a church like ours where there's lots of questions and everything else. But I am a Trinitarian Christian. And I want to explain why I'm a Trinitarian Christian this morning. As a doctrine, it isn't found in the Bible. I find that really fascinating. And you might go, that's blasphemy. That's not blasphemy. That's just the truth. We don't find an explanation of the Trinity in the Bible. And that's not to say it's not biblical. It is biblical, but it was a doctrine that emerged in the second and third centuries. And if you look into it, either either somebody called Tertullian or somebody called um, Theophilus, great name, uh, Theophilus were the fir- was the first person to use the word Trinitarian, this three-in-one concept. And it's good to just sort of be honest about that, because I think it tells us something quite interesting about our ability to stand back from Scripture as a whole and its brilliant, wonderful story and go, ah, oh, we actually worship a God in three parts. It, it, there may be little glimpses when we think about um, Jesus' baptism, Jesus is there, he's part of the Trinity, he's baptised, he comes out of the water, what happens next? A dove comes down, the spirit comes down, and then we hear a voice saying, this is my son, whom I am well pleased. So at the baptism, we see this Trinitarian relationship. It's not an explanation, it doesn't say there aren't more members, but that's there. Uh, It's really not talked about in the Gospels. The only other time I can really think of where there is a proper... uh, uh, taxonomy in that way is in Matthew 28 19 go into all the world and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit 
but it emerged as a doctrine and became central. And the brilliant thing about church history is, is it, it, maybe you find it dull, I find it fascinating. Church history, what happens is that all of these things go through the ring and get tested. People come up with other versions and they say, I'm not really sure the Trinity is a true thing. And they test it and they test it. But over 2,000 years, the Trinitarian central hub of Christianity being the worship of a Trinitarian God has stood the test of all of those kind of uh, challenges. Loads of other things have fallen away. Things that you would find it hard to believe that Christians used to believe, but they've fallen away. But the Trinity still remains. And I think it's fascinating that we're able to stand back from Scripture and go, for instance, there's a good example. In Genesis chapter 1, in the first few verses of the Bible, we, we find, in the beginning, God, God appears. And in the same verse it says, and the Spirit was hovering over the waste or over the waters. So we, we see, oh, there's two people at the beginning of creation. It's not until John 1 where we find somebody saying, Jesus, the Word, was there at the beginning. And in him and through him all things were made. So we go, ah, oh, when we look at the whole sweep of Scripture, we come up with a Trinitarian doctrine. However, there isn't a proof text that we go to to say this is what teaches us about the Trinity. We've accepted it. And there's so many other battles going on in the life of the church at the moment. And often the argument is, I can't, I can't find a verse to approve that, so it must be wrong. But we don't do it with the Trinity. We've been able to look at the whole arc. Does that sort of make sense? And I want to just explain to you a couple of pragmatic reasons why I'm a Trinitarian Christian and why I think uh, being a Trinitarian Christian is important and interesting. <laughs> that word again. Um, partly I love it because it is a mystery. There's just, the, the more you think about it, the more complex and the kind of messiness, that feels a bit more like God to me. It feels like the God who's, re who's revealed in Jesus. Every time people thought they could pin him down, there's something different, there's something different about it. And every kind of metaphor we use, and let's not forget everything I'm about to talk about, are various metaphors to help our understanding. Father, Son, Spirit. You know, there's a very male dominant thing within that. Lots of you will know that book that was written, The Shack, where the author made uh, the spirit a, a woman. And... It was seen as controversial. Like, why is it not controversial that the other two characters were male? I mean, God is not a man. He is not a woman. God is Trinitarian. This, is, this makes it way more interesting. Because in the same instance, he is a man. And he is a woman. And he is binary. And he is non-binary. And all of that kind of messiness of humanity is reflected in God. Why? Because in Genesis, one of the most profound verses, Genesis 1 verse 28, God says, let us make them in our image. That is a mind-blowing verse. One of our most ancient origin stories says, let us. Who is the us? Let us make them in our image. You are made in the image of a Trinitarian God. You're made in the image of a God who is in three parts, which brings me to my first point. <laughs> I've only got seven, you're all right. Um, my first point is the reason that I'm a Trinitarian Christian and I think that it's fascinating and I love it is because even before all of this, there was community. That's incredibly profound to me. It doesn't make a lot of sense why God started any of this stuff if he was just a singular entity. 
the picture of the loneliness of God hanging around in eternity is incredibly different from this image of a God who was already in community. A God who knew what it was like to share love with another and to be loved by another. And that is the image of the Trinity. And some of you will know, uh, because I talk about this quite often, but maybe some of you have joined more recently. This might be vaguely interesting. But I, I talk a lot about this thing of perichoresis. It is a, a word that, that came about in the early church and was used in the early church and sort of dissipated a bit, but has found a kind of new fashionability. And perichoresis simply means to the dance of or to dance around with. And for me, suddenly, we get a more interesting image of the Trinity. Forget the three-leaf clover, or whatever it is. Here is the image of energy and movement, but also of individuality. And so if you can picture the scene, and some of you can picture it already because your minds are, you know, you're made that way, you're whatever you are on the Enneagram, and you can picture these three individual people who are dancing together. And if you press pause on it and could look, you'd go, oh, they're three different people. And if you look really carefully at the dance of each person, their dance is unique, but the dance is so energetic and so... uh, fast-moving and so beautiful that it looks like it's one person. Can you, can you kind of imagine that? This incredible, you know, maybe if you want to imagine it more in a musical sense, there's three players. You're only hearing one beautiful, incredible song and there's improvisation within it and you don't know where it's going to go next but there's beauty in it because all three are playing their parts in harmony with the other. There's a theologian called Thomas Ordu I really like, and, and he talks about that the Trinity is the ultimate expression of self-giving, other-empowering love. It's the ultimate expression of love. I met with somebody this week um, to talk about their wedding that I'm going to do, and they were saying, oh, we're going to do you know, 1 Corinthians 13. Is that a bit like boring? Everybody has that, but we, re- we just really love it. And I was saying to them, yeah, it's a brilliant verse to have. It's brilliant verses to read in, but it's not about a love between a man and a woman or anybody or b- between two people. It's about the love of God, this perfect love, this incredibly engaged, self-giving, other-empowering, giving all of yourself away to somebody else who is giving them all of themselves away to another, to giving them all of themselves away. And that's the image that I want you to hold in your, in your mind. And mind-blowingly, we come back to that verse in Genesis, let us, let us. So the us isn't now three people sitting around a boardroom going, what do you think, guys, should we start the world? It's probably going to be a bad idea and end up badly, but let's give it a whirl. What are the pros and cons? No, there is this dance. And, and I'm sorry if this is kind of an unhelpful, it won't be a helpful image to everybody, for obvious reasons, but I think about like Becky and I deciding to have children. I can't remember, I don't think we ever sat down and went through the pros and cons because you would never have them. <laughs> no, that's a joke. That's, that's a joke. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we did that. I don't, I don't even remember the conversation. There was some moment for us where I don't even think we knew this was happening, but I honestly believe that at the deepest level, the love between Becky and I was so profound to us that it felt right to invite others into that loving relationship. And having children, for me, was going, I want to share with other humans this special bond that me and their mom have together. 
And if anybody ever asks you the question of, well, why did God start all of this? Was it completely natural outpouring from what was already a relationship? Do you understand that? That, that, that just blows my mind and makes it way more beautiful. So if you can possibly understand this, and C.S. Lewis talks about this. He talks about perichoresis, and he talks about if you can imagine it as a kind of dance, and if you can yet imagine it as a dance that you are invited to join in with. That, to me, is mind-blowing. So there is this beautiful mutuality, or in one church values language, there is a beautiful interdependence going on. Before time began, that, that dance was happening. It didn't need any more. It wasn't unfulfilled. It wasn't a lonely God wandering around in the, in the emptiness. It was a God happy and in love and being loved and knowing love and producing love and receiving love. That's the whole creation began from that beautiful point. And what the, the call of Christ in our lives is to join in that dance. And the moment you show any love to somebody, the moment this morning that you welcome somebody that you didn't know, you just did a bit of the dance. And I think heaven celebrates when you join in. I was brought up in this, this terrible theology that when you prayed the prayer, doesn't appear in the Bible either, but when you pray the prayer, like party poppers and streamers went off in heaven and there was a big party when you prayed the prayer. I think party poppers and streamers are going off in heaven all the time when you decide to join in the dance. When you, choose, when you decide not to choose self, but to choose other. When you decide not to gather the love just for you and a couple of other people, but you invite the stranger in. You welcome the refugee. You visit the prisoner. You clothe the naked. You give food to the hungry. You join in the dance. That's a beautiful, beautiful image that when you do that, you become like part of this loving community that is creation. That blows my mind. So the Trinity tells us that what we're made from is what we're made for. There's always been a them before there was us. And now there's just us. The Godhead inviting us to be part of it. The second part, is that it also helps us to understand the answer to that first question I asked you to think about. The Trinity understood right helps us to understand where God is. And this is the bit that I think just been, that I've changed my thinking on and I feel quite excited about. Because let, let me just ask you this question. Just use, use your fingers, right, just to sort of point direction for me. So just go with it, okay? Imagine we're in Sunday school. Can you just point to me roughly... Where is God? Think about the three parts. Where is... So we're going to talk about God. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about the Spirit before we go. So point where God is. <laughs> this is a trick. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Where is Jesus? <laughs> oh, there's some movement happening. <laughs> Oh, someone spotted communion. You're cheating. You can't see him. You can't see him. Where is the spirit? Interesting, because there are lots of different things going on there. That I could take a straw poll and I could just have to trust me. The general vibe was God's up there. There was sort of quite a lot of agreement on the spirit, sort of around here, a couple of people doing this. 
Jesus, uh, who knows where Jesus is. Um, but traditionally, and the way that we talk in church, and some of it is just metaphor, it's just language, but this stuff makes, shapes our thinking, doesn't it? But the language we use is, where is God right now? He is, give me an answer that you think might be biblical. Where is he? He's here, stop, stop ruining my talk. And <laughs> he's in heaven, and where is he in heaven? He's on a throne. Thank you, Sam. Somebody here is getting what <laughs> He doesn't believe that, but he's on the throne. And where, where therefore, is Jesus? Well, the Bible tells us he's the right hand of the Father. So he's on like a little throne. <laughs> Poor old Jesus. He's on like, you know, the, the child's table at Christmas. That's where, where Jesus is. And the Spirit, oh, well, he's everywhere. He's out of control. You know, he can go anywhere he likes. He's got access to all areas. But God's up in heaven. The Son's next to him. And the Spirit floats around wherever he wants to. What about character? Let, let me just be slightly naughty. But I think that if you've grown up in church, you probably think, ah, God, he's the angry one, right? He's the one with his hand hovering over the smite button. He's the one who's, who's angry. And Jesus, next to him, he's the one always covering over the smite button. He's the lovely guy. He's the nice one. No, don't do that, Dad. Don't do that. Don't do that. Or if you're going to hit anybody, hit me. Sorry, getting into a bit of controversial theology <laughs> here. <laughs> And the Holy Spirit, well, goodness knows what he thinks. He's just floating around everywhere. He's probably quite nice. He's probably more to do with your emotions. He makes you feel stuff. So there's, an, there's a body, there's someone in a body, that's Jesus. He's on a throne. There's God, does he have a body? I don't know, what does a throne look like for someone who hasn't got a body? Um, it gets confusing, yeah? And, and all I want to say to you is that you damage the image of God every time you try to split up the Trinity. Because the Trinity is one. If you say, I can really feel the Spirit in this place, you are saying, I can really feel God in this place and I can really feel Christ in this place. If you say, there's something about the character of Jesus that I really love, you are saying, there is something about the character of God I really love. There is something about the character of the Holy Spirit I really like. Because God is like Jesus, and God is like the Spirit. Maybe you can get your head around that, but I, I love the provocation of Jesus is just like God. And God is just like Jesus, that embodied person that we know who walked the earth, and we can look at his life and go, wow, he's beautiful, he's brilliant, he's compassionate. That's God. But it's also the Spirit. And the moment you try and tear them apart, so where is God? This kind of thing of like, if I'm praying to God, I sort of look upwards because he's there. And, and he's sitting next to you in the person of Christ, expressed through the Spirit, going, why are you, look, where are you? I'm here, hello. All of that is kind of messy, isn't it? But I think it's really important because it situates where, G, where, 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 the, where God is, where the Trinity is. And I just want to tell you, Really quickly, some places that people have tried to sort of place God and place the Trinity. And fundamentally, there's always been this war, and you'll have felt this, because I reckon maybe half the room, we could maybe split the room, when I said to you where God is. For some of you, you went immediately right very local. 
and you thought, well, he's here. He's right here with me. Others of you thought maybe, you know, well, God is he's amazing and he's incredible. It's not that you don't believe in God, but he is other. He's up there somewhere. He's mysterious. And for some of you, might have gone, he might well have disappeared because I don't know where he is. And those two positions have these theological words that don't be too scared about, but they are transcendent and imminent. Not imminent, but imminent. And imminent means within, to be within. And essentially transcendent, God being transcendent, he's other, he's outside. Time for my football. So, I want you to imagine that this is the universe, okay? So, goodness, there's some scientists in the room probably could tell me how small the earth would be if I could hold the universe. I mean, you wouldn't be able to, obviously, you wouldn't be able to see it probably. You'd need an incredible microscope to see it. But imagine somewhere in here, and in our arrogance, it's in the middle. (laughs) Not on the edge somewhere. Um, But imagine the earth is in here, and this is the whole of the universe. And there's been a few positions that people have taken up to try and explain where is God. Now, the first is called deism. If you've heard of that phrase, but deism is essentially that, yes, God created. We're not denying that. God created the universe. All matter that exists is held within this football. I want you to imagine that. But God did made this. He then set natural laws within it. In other words, this is the way the universe works and will always work. And you're going to learn something about the nature of God by understanding natural laws, but God has moved on to another project. There isn't any place for God. He's not within this at all, and he might be outside of it, but he has nothing to do with it. And that's called deism. That became popular in the 17th century, right about the same time as the Enlightenment movement, where we're trying to explain everything. And there was a a book, I can't remember who it was by now, but called uh, The Divine Watchmaker. Because this was the image that God is like someone who's made a watch, who's wound it up, and now it is just ticking away on its own, and he's off doing something else. That's called deism. Does that, do you understand that? Yeah. The other position that's, been, that's had popularity over the years is something called pantheism, which says, no, 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 no. God made all of this, but this is all of God. And pantheism simply means that God is all things. But he is contained by all things. So God is really, really present. So in that first thing, deism, the, tr- the transcendence of God uh, isn't possible. Only the imminence of God. Have I got that right around? Yeah, let me think about the second one. In pantheism, God is wholly imminent. So it's the other way around. So God is wholly imminent in pantheism. Because, because this is God. I'm holding in my hands God. But he can't be transcendent because he's bound by that. Does that make sense? And, ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, for the good people of One Church Brighton, both of those positions are heresies that have gone through that web that I was talking about, or that mesh, that sorting thing throughout the years, and have been put to to a side to say neither of those. Because God has to be more than this, but he's not separate from this. So, we come to what most uh, churches would teach, knowingly or otherwise. It's probably mostly what you believe, knowingly or otherwise, and that is called classical theism. 
And classical theism is that, imagine this whole room is full of God, but this is also within that room. And, and classical theism basically says God so loved the world that, he, that here's this universe that he's created. And essentially, and this is a little bit blunt, but let me just cut to the chase, his resting state is on the throne in heaven, outside of, of this, the universe. But occasionally, God can, God can and is active within the world. And if you think, oh, I'm not sure if I believe that or not, Go to a prayer meeting, and you will know that that's what most people believe. Oh, God, would you just come and be amongst us? God, would you come into our presence today? We, our, our, our default setting is that God sits outside of this place, and we invite him to come and act upon it. Does that make sense? So that's not a bad, Dave Steele saying, it's not a bad theology. It stood the test of time for 2,000 years by some very smart people. But that's called classical theism. I wonder if you can see any, I wonder if you find any problems with that. One of the biggest problems is called the, a theodicy of the problem of evil and suffering. So this place contains brokenness and wrongdoing and isn't as it should be. And God occasionally comes into it and at some point is going to replace it with a new version and therefore everything's going to be all right in the end. There is another way to understand God that I think is kind of gaining in understanding and popularity, I guess for use of a horrible word. But it's called panentheism. And panentheism means that God in all things. So God is fully within this world within the universe that the trees that you walked under to get here today God is in every molecule that's made up those trees he is in every person in this room he is in all things but he is also outside does that make sense completely transcendent and completely imminent at the same time and the bit that I find that blew my mind was that this is not an unorthodox uh, piece of, of, of theology. It's not heretical because it holds both of those things in tension. Is he transcendent? Yes. Is he imminent? Yes. But all of the time, both positions. The bit that I blew my mind was to realize that in Eastern Orthodoxy, the kind of original pathway from the early church before it split between Western Orthodoxy and Eastern Orthodoxy, where we, in the Western branch, we have Catholicism, and then we have, I can never say the word, Protestants, isms, um, where we have those threads, and we're part of the Protestantism uh, <laughs> um, wing. But actually, when you go back, there was a more ancient understanding of God. I'm not saying that the, the, the Western one is wrong, because it brought up some beautiful truth. But I think there is some lost truth that Eastern Orthodox or Greek Orthodoxy still celebrates. And for Eastern Orthodox people, this is not a theological problem whatsoever. Because they believe in a God who is expressed and found in two different ways. And this is the exciting bit, I promise you. <laughs> and it's summed up in there's a, a, a theologian who I love called Sally McFake, who I've talked about before. And she says that this is the body of God, which is a very provocative thought, part because she's 
worried, as we all should be, about the future of our planet. And I think she's been deliberately provocative. But she says, this is God's body. Why? Because this is the material God. The God that you can touch. And like, like we were led in this morning, the God that you can smell and taste and feel. This is the body of God. And all of this outside of it is the soul of God. Now, they use these two theological words, and don't get sort of too lost in this, but they say that there is an essence of God, this is the essence of God, and there is an energy of God. And God, therefore, can have both of those things at the same time. It makes so much sense to me, because I have a body. If you were to say to me, Dave, tell us a bit about yourself, I wouldn't say, well, I've got one heart and two lungs and I've got two legs <laughs> what more do you want to know about me you know I don't start talking about my body I'll tell you about my passions and the things that I love I am you know in, in a weird philosophical way I am something that lives quite outside of Dave Steele the body but I am also my body those two things are inextricably linked and we just take that completely for granted that it's possible to be both body and to be both soul we live that all the time. That's not controversial, is it? We understand it. And all I'm saying to you is that it's possible to theologically understand God as a God who has a body that's material, that you can touch and feel and know and look at and see. And there is a God who is mysterious in the same way that I'm mysterious. Honestly, <laughs> I'm not shallow. That There's stuff you don't know about me. There's stuff I don't know about myself. I'm explaining to you right now things that I'm discovering for the first time. And that is what God is like in that he is other and therefore omnipotent and omnipresent and all of those other omnis at the same time as being utterly knowable and present. Does that make sense? And the bit that, the bit that I find fascinating, and I'm, I'm telling, I feel like a prophet this morning, I'm telling you I think the way that Christianity is headed is, isn't it fascinating that Eastern religions are all embodied religions? I don't know if you've thought about that. So when you think about other Eastern uh, faiths, they're embodied practices that for Buddhists, the embodied breath and mindfulness, practices like yoga, practices like forest bathing that are, are taking off, you know, that, that are big in Japan and these countries... That's their normal understanding of spirituality. Oh, if I need to know God, what, do I, what, what can I do to feel and know him? And you're breathing. We sang that song. It's your breath in my lungs. That's the proof of God to me. Christianity doesn't talk that way. The proof of God was Jesus coming and dying on the cross. That's abstract and it's transcendent. I'm not saying it's not true. But I think that we live in a world where people are leaving the church and finding God in tangible ways that they can breathe in and they can touch and they can know and they can go down to the sea in Brighton and have this transcendent moment which is beautifully imminent at the same time where they're surrounded by God or by love or by the universe or some name that they can't give. And I want to say that's the Trinity. That is the Trinity there. I want to finish by telling you a story that um, is found in the Gospel of Thomas, which never made it into the canon of Scripture. 
But just interestingly, it also made it into the Quran. The Quran has stories about Jesus. And one of the stories in the Quran and the Gospel of St. Thomas, you might have heard this, it's a beautiful story that when Jesus was a child, he was making some uh, clay birds, scooping mud out of the earth and shaping them into birds. And these other kids are looking at him. And he takes the clay bird and he breathes into the bird and the bird comes to life and flies. That is cool. You'd get pretty annoying if you are at school with him, wouldn't you? But, um, but, but I don't know if that's, that's a true story or not, but I love it because the Trinity is in action. Why? Because God the Creator, who makes stuff from the clay, the ground of the earth, we are made from the dust of the earth. Your body is made up of molecules and atoms that were parts of something else. It's quite a weird thought. But none of you is original. You were made, you were formed, I believe, by God the Creator, who made this very stuff that we're all made from. God made matter and loves matter. And the Bible tells us in, in, the, in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is the author and sustainer of our faith. But all things were made by him and for him. And he is reconciling all things unto himself. So Jesus' job seems to be this shaping role. But also Jesus' role was to bring all things to him. And the Spirit's job, as I mentioned a few weeks ago in this uh, moment that I'll never be able to say again. But the, the, in the Westminster Catechism, in the Latin, they use the word for the Spirit, the vivivicantum. <laughs> Sorry, I won't, go, I won't do that again. But the vivivicantum. And the vivivicantum is where we get the word to vivify. The vividness of something. And that beautiful image that the, that the breath that Christ is blowing into the clay is the breath of the Spirit. So the bird takes flight and sings its song and is beautiful. So, in nature, we see the whole of the Trinity, the whole of God. It somehow gives weight to and endorses this thought that Fran started our service today. Why is it that listening to birdsong and really listening you know, this, I just had such a beautiful moment uh, the other day. The next weekend when we're going away, I'll just tell you this story quickly. It's because it's a great story. <laughs> I, I, I said, why don't we do some forest bathing? I think that would be quite fun. You keep your clothes on, by the way. Well, you don't have to, I suppose, but if I'm there, please keep them on. And, um, and uh, so I thought, well, I'd better find some forest. <laughs> and so where we are is this great field. It's beautiful. I t- turned up there on Friday, I think it was. And there were four grey wagtails on the, on, the, on, the, on the trampoline, which was quite fun. And there was a buzzard and a red kite and a kestrel in the sky as I pulled the car up. It's cool. Lots of you going, oh, big nerd. S- shut up. You've got stuff you're into. I've got stuff I'm into. And so I was like already in heaven going, this place is amazing. And then on Google Earth, I'd found this block of trees and this will blow your mind. So I zoomed in on the trees that are the closest woods to where we're staying. And in the trees, when you look on Google Earth, it says, Jesus, I am the way, the truth, the life. 
in a massive field. I Google it, who owns it, and I find a picture of Chris Evans, because <laughs> uh, he's the nutter. No, no, no. <laughs> no, but somebody that Chris works with is a farmer who planted that in the 90s, who would have no idea that Google Earth would one day be invented, and planted it in a maze. And there's this beautiful story about somebody, about people walking around this maze just thinking it was a maze, until somebody who was autistic was taken around it, and they said, this spells Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that's where we're going to forest bathe next weekend. But as I stood there, and these willows were just wishing together, and the noise that came out of them, there was a chiff-chaff doing his thing. There was a blackbird singing over here. And I startled some deer that ran away. And I just had this moment in a week that hasn't been my best week. of just standing in the middle of this grove and feeling the presence of God Father, Son, and Spirit, fully present there. Not a God that I had to beg to come down and be nice to me, but a God whose kindness is already present there. Even on my walk to church this morning, Caveman, if you can stick that up, I couldn't resist just taking this photograph. The double yellow lines of no parking, the concrete that's poured, every... uh, piece of technological kind of advancement of humanity trying to squash out God's given earth Christ's sustaining beauty and the spirit giving life and color and smell and touch the, 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 the holy trinity the Godhead is fully present in that flower just as the Godhead is fully present in you. Isn't that a beautiful and profound thing? How can we hate other people when we can see in them the beautiful, loving, Trinitarian, self-giving, other-empowering love that is at the heart of everybody? Sometimes it's so marred and messed up that it's nearly impossible for us to see, but we trust that it is in the heart of everybody. And as we come to have communion this morning... Other than the natural world, this thing that we do, this is the natural world. We, we, we can forget about it because it's a loaf from Asda, I think, and it's some sort of juice. But th- this was once growing in a field. This is wine because it was once growing on a vine. LAUGHTER and, and, and the beautiful thought, could you imagine, you know, that these berries, whatever they were, they were once the earth and they grew and, and now we get to drink this and we get to eat. This is as embodied as we get to understanding God. And so often the emphasis of communion is on Christ, as well it should be. But we've just torn apart the Trinity once again. The terrible theology that comes out of what happened on the cross was a tearing apart of the Trinity. The whole of the Trinity hung on the cross. We, we come up with some terrible views of God where we go, God was in heaven looking down on this thing that was happening and goodness knows where the spirit was at that point. There's metaphor to help us understand, but this image that we have here is God, Christ, and the spirit. This embodied, fully there if we choose to notice that it's there.
So we're going to take a communion together. I, I, I meant to leave some time for questions. Maybe we've got time for a couple. And I'd really like questions, because I know that that's sort of a load of stuff. But just as maybe the band can get ready, because we're going to sing a song to help us. But uh, uh, does anybody have any questions? That you, you, and you can say, I completely disagree with that, and that would be absolutely fine. Any questions about that stuff? Yes. Hi, I just wonder why why do you think it's important to understand the tr to understand it all? Because I feel it's a mystery, and sometimes I'd rather leave it untouched. Yeah, yeah, that's a good that's a good point. I think I think we can't help being meaning making people. We, it, it's like the beautiful thing about this is that we benefit from it, whether we know it, whether we can grasp it or not. But. I, I don't know, there are times in my life where it just hasn't bothered me. There's other times where I, I do want to know more. And that's the sort of cyclical nature of faith. Times where you just rest in it and times where you have some more questions. And I guess all I'm doing is trying to put forward, there are other ways for this understanding and there is a richness. And it adds dynamism. It adds something that's more dynamic than God is up there and I'm down here. This thought that actually he's right in amongst me. And even in my explanation this morning, as long as I've gone on, it's just one little slither of maybe understanding this great mystery. That's the transcendent. But we also are imminent people. And I think more and more society is saying, give me something that's imminent. Give me something I can touch and know. And Christians aren't always very good at being able to explain that because it's about what happens after you die and it's something that's happening up there. And I think it's good to explain about what's happening here and try and try our best to understand that. But you're right. We're never going to go, got it. It's in the box. We get it. It's always leaking out in ways that we wish it wouldn't. Yes. Um, do you pray to God, Jesus, and Holy Spirit separately or for different reasons? Or do you pray all your prayers to God? Or? That's a great question. And, and I suppose to, to not blow the Trinity apart is to, to say it doesn't matter. I think I've had de very definite times in my life where I could only speak to Jesus. He was the connection. There's other times where it was just really that mystery and that spirit sort of stuff. But I think as long as we know that we haven't torn apart that, that as we, in speaking to one, we're speaking to the whole. I think that's what that matters. And whatever you feel right now connects you most. Um, but what about the fact that Jesus, when he taught us to pray, said we should pray to our Father? And that wasn't the trinity there was it yes that's a it's a helpful point so when jesus says pray to our father again is that just jesus giving us a method to help us understand or is it that we should only pray to the father for me again it comes back to this standing back from the whole of jesus's life that particularly that image of him coming out and being baptized and hearing the voice of the father but the spirit is there represented in the dove. You can't tear it apart. We're going to sing. And we're going to sing a song that just um, invites us to communion. And you are invited to come and take this. And we're going to pass it around so you don't have to move. But there is bread here. There is also some uh, gluten-free things here. And we'll pass those around. And really just want to encourage you to take the bread and the wine this morning, in that very embodied way? Does it, is it helpful for you to go, this is the whole of the Trinity? 
this is the, this is the whole of the Trinity, unless that's people sending me questions. Um, um, is that helpful to you? That's powerful. It isn't just the nice sun. This is the whole of the Trinity that I can touch and I can taste, and is real. And uh, there's this lovely song that just talks about that that being invited and coming with all of those questions, with all of that mystery, and still being invited uh, to do that. So we, I'll pass the bread round, take some of that, and then just as a nice little tradition in the life of this church, we hold on to the little cups, and then we drink together, just as a sign of our unity. But uh, yeah, let's do that. <laughs>